Yes, it's Whataboust, a celebration of Reeves and Mortimer. Please welcome your hosts for this podcast, MJ Price and Paula Wiseman. Hello and welcome to Quadaboast, a podcast dedicated to the work and genius of Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. My name is Matt Price, founder of the Reeves and Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group and occasional radio bloke. And I'm Paula Wiseman, the creator of the Divine Comedians podcast. Today, we are joined by a man who has, over the last 30-odd years, worked with Jim and Bob in a variety of roles. Actor, writer, director, producer, script editor, and stand-in man with a stick. He is also a prolific author, radio presenter, actor, podcaster, (laughs) and one of the UK's greatest comedy writers and performers. Please enter the Novelty Island paddock, Charlie Higson. Hey! Hi, John. Hello there. Hello there. <laughs> what an intro! What an intro! What a marvelous intro! I was just thinking, what a genius this man sounds like. Who is it? Who have they got? So much stuff. Who can it be? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can gather by that list of um, various roles you've uh, carried out, Charlie, we'll just go chronologically until you want to um, wave the white flag and say <laughs> yes, enough. We should make it through the first six months. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We get to 1990. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, so I guess we can kind of start off by going back to the, the beginning, I suppose, of your comedy career. Your initial, your partnership with Paul Whitehouse is quite well documented now. But can you give us a little bit of an overview of how the, the journey into comedy began? Obviously, you met Paul at uni. In the Yeah, I met Paul Norwich. at um, the University of East Anglia, UEA, in Norwich in 1977, which was before the days of alternative comedy. So the thought of uh, getting on stage and doing funny stuff never crossed our minds. It wasn't anything that we knew anyone else doing. Nobody else in the university was doing it. I mean, in if you'd been to Oxford, Cambridge, uh, perhaps some of the other couple of posher ones, there, there may have been, you know, like the, the, the equivalent of footlights and whatever. But back then, if you wanted to go on stage and ask about and try and impress your friends and um, uh, get off with women, if you, well, yeah, sorry, and get off with women, um, uh, you formed a band. And it being 1977, Paul and I formed a punk band called The Right Hand Lovers, which was fun. We were a student punk band in Norwich, with all that that implies. Um, And we lasted about a year before Paul and... Nearly everybody else in the band were thrown out of university for not doing any work. Um, but I kept in touch with Paul over the years and we remained friends. Um, another friend we had at university, in fact, he was in the band, a guy called Dave Cummings. His brother, Ted, was a big friend of a guy called Harry Enfield, who was um, eventually met him. I think we met him when he was still a, a schoolboy. He came up to visit Ted and Harry came up to visit um, Dave. Harry was that much, a few years younger than than me and Paul. He eventually did go to York University where they did have a performing 
tradition there and he formed a double act there called Dusty and Dick which was his route into comedy but we got to know him back then just as just as a friend of a friend another friend I met at university was a guy called Alan Davidson who was from Darlington and Rick Reeves fans will know the name Alan Davidson as the name of Alan Davidson the Filthy Fox yes. <laughs> uh, which is named after Alan who was an old friend of Chin as he called mm. um, Jim <laughs> Stroke Vic Reeves back then. He was known as Chin. Um, and I met Chin through Alan, who was Alan was a really good friend of mine at university. Um, in those days, Chin was kind of, he was a wannabe artist. He was hanging around with other students at um, Goldsmiths. Um, and, but over the years, Alan said, oh, you know, Chin's now got this character called Vic Reeves, um, Britain's greatest light entertainer. And he's doing these shows and he said, they're really funny. You should, you should try and catch him. Um, never got round to it. Uh, well, didn't get round to it for a long while. Um, I remember seeing um, Jim as Vic Reeves on the tube yeah. where he did, uh, they did a sort of parody of Celebrity Squares. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. And he was kind of as Vic Reeves, but he was on a wire and he was floating around in front of his people. <laughs> right. And they and he was asking sort of um shooting stars type questions, like um, how long is the long arm of the law? Yeah. Uh, th- things like that. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, you know what, that, that he's pretty funny and very, very confident. I mean, it 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 is half the battle, I think, in, in comedy and certainly stand-up. To be able to come out and convince the audience you are mm. Britain's greatest light entertainer, even though they've never heard of you, and to hold your own with that audience. And he was he was learning his trade down in um, down in Deptford with pretty rough crowds, uh, you know, Deptford, New Cross area, and and round the Goldsmith. Um, so sometimes students, but sometimes rowdy audiences. And you know, he whether there were two people in the audience or a hundred or two hundred, he would still come out with the same chutzpah and the same the same shtick and um he was he has never been phased by a bad audience he almost relishes it you know um i remember years later we were in we went to the montreal comedy festival just for laughs um (laughs) and the Brit acts tended to be a little bit more, uh, a bit less mainstream than, you know, the Americans all had this kind of down the line, very slick uh, stand up. There were a few British acts who held their own like that. I mean, by the time we went, we were working with, um, me and Paul were working writing for Craig Ferguson, writing with Craig Ferguson. Oh, yeah. And he went down a storm because he, just was big and Scottish mm. and understood that kind of showbiz thing. And and on the back of that, he moved to America and, and worked in American TV mm. for years. But going over with Harry and Paul, who were doing the DJs, and Vic and Bob, who were doing big night out stuff, the uh, Canadian audiences were absolutely bemused. You know, Harry and Paul went down like a cup of cold sick. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, Harry sort of held his own. Paul, Paul, who never really thought of himself as a as a as a stand up as a live performer, he he really didn't enjoy it at all. But um, Vic and Bob, the more that the audiences would stunned and bemused and had no idea what was going on, the more they enjoyed it. There was a tradition there that all the all the acts would do a kind of warm up in um, 
in a smaller local club because the big gala festival is a huge theater and we went uh, paul and i uh, went along to see vic and bob do their bit well harry harry and paul were doing their stuff there as well and it was i think the funniest night i've ever had we nearly died (laughs) mainly because of the audience just because it, it was a year when a lot of the uh, the American stand-up comedians who for, uh, for a few years, because we used to go over there for a bit, the Channel 4 used to pay us to go over as writers to kind mm. of work on this various stuff around the show. Mm. Anyway, um, for, year, for a couple of years, the American stand-ups had all been saying, I took so many drugs last night. Yeah. Um, or, hey, I, I slept with 30 women last week. Um, but for some reason this year, they were all saying, hey, I just got married. Huge applause from the audience and to be showing the ring. Hey, yeah. you know what it's like when you're married? And they were all doing this kind of, I'm married now and I'm settled down and I'm grown up. Um, so, so Vic and Bob come out. For some reason, just before they went on, there were two jugs of orange juice backstage. And, and Vic said to Bob, take one of these. So they went on <laughs> a jug of orange juice. And the first thing they did was, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Jim doing his Tyrannosaurus yeah. uh, impress and the sort of Ray Harry, Harry, Harryhausen Tyrannosaurus. So they went around the stage doing that for a bit with the audience. Oh, where's this going? And then Vic goes up to, oh, all right, no, I just got married. I can't do the accident. <laughs> uh, and we've had a kid, a little boy, and he's a crab. <laughs> Called Ian, at, at which point he, I think he had the crab in a handbag, uh, which he'd also gone out as the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And he interviews. Have you seen his is he in the crab interview? Yes, yeah. it's about the arboreal yes, uh, right. forests of Scotland. Yeah. So it's him interviewing this plastic crab in a handbag, and. You know, it just went on from there as as they descended more and more. And and the more that the audience didn't get it, the more strange uh, and deranged Vic pushed it, and and Bob just went along for the ride. But you know, I mean, he is a he is a steely performer. Well, when you um, see Jim on the early um, le- well, the late eighties shows like Jonathan shows and Jules Holland shows, mm-hmm. and he never looks like. A rabbit caught in the headlights who's in this alien world he just does his own thing and if you're yeah. if you're aboard with it then then great if you're not he's going to do it anyway so yes and 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 that confidence and and it, it just it just wins you over because you just accept okay this is this is vic reeves yeah <laughs> and yeah i mean it, it, i think partly because he you know as he, as he claims he, he never really set out to be a comedian it for him it was a it was a sort of art perform piece yeah. of performance art um, but it worked, you know. I mean, the, the, eventually, I went to see on Alan's insistence. I went to see um, the big night out at, at Goldsmiths Tavern, which is where he sort of mm. started as a as a full on show. And it, it wasn't it, there wasn't a huge audience there. I think it was possibly the last night he ever did there. I'm not in my memory it was, and I was just blown away by it. There was no one else certainly in London, doing anything like it. You know, he had a whole evening's entertainment. A lot of it was his mates coming on and, and doing stuff to with varying quality. Um, yeah. 
and him holding it together and you know just his frame of reference the things he was talking about the sort of mixture of high and low art um stupid comedy and very clever comedy it it it, uh, it was just the the best thing i'd ever seen you know th- this was sort of late 80s i guess which is pre bob i guess is it no bob was there so i'm not very good on dates but anyway and i said to paul i said paul you got to come and you got to come and see this this is the most extraordinary thing um and he did so maybe it wasn't the last night maybe the second time we were it was the last night yeah <clears throat> so whereabouts were you in your timeline charlie with regards to and st- all that kind i'd of formed stuff? i'd formed another band at university and then when i left university i did that for another um sort of five or six years then i became a decorator but through all that period i was writing and i'd stayed friends with paul and we started to write together harriet asked paul to write stuff for him because Paul, Paul was your archetypal funny mate down the pub um but who didn't see himself as a writer or a performer so Harry basically just used to nick everything off him and put it into his live you know it was it was Paul who first did the impression of the sort of cockney kebab shop owner um it became Stavros um and, and stuff like that so and Harry did his double act for a while then he did a solo act which was not really impressions it was it was character comedy which which again at the time not very few people were doing yeah yeah Um, it was all sort of quite right on um 80s stand-up quite political so again what harry was doing like like what vic and bob were doing was 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 very different and and so um harry got signed on to do spitting image to do um characters on that um, and he was very good because you see Harry has a talent when he does characters and when he does impersonations, he, he makes them a character. It's not just a voice. Yeah. So he, even though his voice is on speaking image, they weren't always, you know, a carbon copy of the original. There was character in them. So it, it allowed him to work with the puppeteers to make these politicians in, into funny characters. And it, it wasn't just, oh, I can do that voice. Um and so he'd asked Paul to, to write with him and Paul came to me. I had a early Amstrad word processor, which if anyone has ever used one of them is in a, a, a weird and primitive and clunky machine. <laughs> but Paul basically came to me. He said, look, um, I want to write with Harry. I don't know how to write and I don't have a word processor. processor. You know how to write. You have a word processor. I'd been writing, basically writing novels over the years. Um, he said, shall we work together? And we'd always been able to make each other laugh. And we were both very different. And Joe, so I think what made our partnership work is that he was very instinctive. Um, he came from a much more working class background than me. I was much more sort of cerebral and structural and came from a more middle class background. So we could kind of both fill in the gaps of what the other one didn't. Hmm. um so i would sit and 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 type and and we'd we'd bash stuff out and then when harry got on to saturday night live as it was when it started became friday night live he did stavros for the first series of that writing with someone else and they were having to do sort of stavros was sort of doing um political satire which was really not what it was best for but the second series ben elton took over that side of things and Stavros was free just to do more, <clears throat> more social satire. Um, and one of the producers, Jeffrey Perkins, who was probably the greatest comedy producer of all time, 
got me and Paul in to work with him and with Harry on Stavros. And then we we developed loads of money off the back of that. So we were going down that route. And then we started, we begged Vic and Bob and said, look, you know, if you do more shows, we'd love to come and do Novelty Island or whatever, do anything. And they and when they moved, they moved to the Albany Empire, which was a yeah. big theatre, relatively big to where they'd been playing in um, Albany Empire. Is that Deptford or New Cross? Deptford, I think, isn't it? Anyway, the Albany Empire. Mm. And they would do these runs where they'd do several weeks on a Sunday night and it would be the full evening's entertainment from, you know, some sort of eight o'clock through to 11 o'clock, a completely new show every week. Mm. Now, yeah. they had the, the Vic Reeves structure of running it like a, a light entertainment night. So they had Novelty Island. They had Judge Nutmeg. They had all the games and the songs. Um, they had Man with a Stick. So they had this, well, as I say, this structure. So they simply could say, okay, this week, in man with a stick he'll be talking about this um yeah and you know novelty island will get whoever's around to come on and do do acts and be guests and you know bob would come up with stuff and they had a regular team of, of friends of theirs they had uh you know les was already in place yeah um so it but it was it was amazing and again nobody else was doing anything like it but because it was south of the river in london the, the critics and the comedy critics just did, ignored it they never went mm. And every week, the listing you know, timeout was kind of like the Bible of what before the internet. What you what are you going to do tonight? Well, we're checking timeout or, or city limits arrival. Mm. And the listing for for all it ever said about Vic Reeves' big night out was Vic Reeves' big night out light entertainment, and that was it. Never yeah. got reviewed or anything, but through word of mouth, started getting really big audiences, and a lot of big uh, sort of TV people started hovering around. And and Paul and I would, you know, we'd, we'd say, okay, what do you want us to do next week? And and Vic would come up with something, and you knew it was completely off the top of his head. <laughs> uh, he said, could you be a man with 40-foot-long trousers? <laughs> that was more of a Yorkshire accent. Um, <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, okay, yeah, I think I could probably make that, because we'd have to go and make all these bloody props. Right. Is there anything else to it? <laughs> uh, and, he said, uh, and he'd say, yeah, um, it's got pictures of canals on it. <laughs> so I would, uh, so I then go home and try and make it and I'd ring him up and I'd say, I can't, you know, it's 40 foot. It's, I can't, I don't have time to make 40 foot. Right, if they're like just like 10 foot long. So yeah, yeah, that's all right. And, and so I'd make 10 foot long trousers and paint pictures of canals on it. And um that would be so the you act. become a comedy performer by accident, really, then, Charlie, by going on stage. Well, with totally, yeah. We just wanted to be part of it. Um, and you could go on and do these daft characters and it would just go wherever it went on the day of what, what Vic decided to ask you and what you came up with. And, you know, a lot of the time he, he would give, give us something to do while he and Bob went off and changed into another character or got ready for something else. But mainly so they could go off backstage and, and, and drink heavily. <laughs> eat crisps and i think they'd often deliberately drag it out so that we were on stage <laughs> thinking how do we keep this going so you know it'd be something like yeah we wanted to do a dream sequence um you're tanita tickerham uh, and you're rick wakeman uh, but you're not playing a piano you're playing a lilo off you go <laughs> off a step ladder. and you say yeah okay and, and then what happens and then um 
because then he would introduce us before he went off and, and he said yeah and then um Tanita ticker and squirts you in the eye with some tart lemon yeah <laughs> and we'd try and string this act out which wasn't an act which he'd just come up with for, for like five or six minutes while they got ready and and again you know the worse it went down the funnier they thought yeah um and and you know they were and, and then and you know they had a lot as i said a lot of their mates mostly these sort of people from the northeast would come on and, and do these bits and um you know, there was always a great personality to whatever the bits they were doing. And, it, yeah. it, you know, th- th- there's definitely a different sense of humour up in the, in the North East mm. and, and, and different frames of reference. I think, have you had on Dorian or are you going to have We have on? had Dorian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. again, yeah. you know, he he was part of that of that stable. He wasn't from the North East, but, uh, you know, he, he basically just had his act as the toff and... Yeah. He would tell these awful <laughs> jokes while the audience screamed at him to fuck off, which... <laughs> It's ran and ran. So there was all stuff like that. And it was just great fun. And it was so inventive and exciting and different to, to, to have a completely new show every week was amazing. And then the people, the TV people hovered and, and Vic and Bob eventually decided to go with, um, with Jonathan Ross for Channel X. And then they were tasked with making it what had been two, two hours, yeah. half an hour. I thought it just wouldn't work. I, I just thought you can't, you can't do this. It's not going to work. And I really thought what they, my idea of what they should do would have been like Saturday morning live TV, mm. whether it's a kid's show or a student show or whoever watches those things. I said, do it live every Saturday morning for two hours. Um, they didn't listen to me quite sensibly. <laughs> Yeah. Be like Tiz was. <laughs> yeah, I mean that kind of thing. And yeah, and, yeah. And and and, the, and those shows lend themselves to that. You know, I mean, like Pee Wee Herman did in in yeah. America, yeah. amazing show which everybody watched. But you know, the, the TV being TV, they wanted to fit it into a box. And I think Vic and Bob were. It was. It, I don't think they listened to me for one minute, but it was certainly less daunting to just say, "Okay, we're doing six half hours, and we're not doing it live. We can edit it." And they, you know, they involved me and Paul from the start. We we did bits and pieces on the pilot. I remember on the pilot, Vic always had a very very strong idea visually of what everything should be, which was which has been one of the big successes of everything they've done. Mm. Uh, and he wanted this all white set with Vic Reeves' Big Night Out written on it, as as we're so familiar with seeing. And I remember the rehearsals for the pilot. We had this set it was all going well um we went away and we came back for the recording and the director had decided that the white background had looked a bit bland so mm. he'd got the the got them to paint it yeah it was sort of textured red and reds and browns all over it and vic and bob were absolutely appalled and um they filmed the pilot with that set but absolutely hated it and yeah you know, when they came to do the series, a new director. They'd gone with the, um, a very, very experienced, very good director, but quite traditional. And it was mm. like, I know how to make TV. Uh, these boys don't really, you know, I know what's going to look good. And and and, it, and he was wrong. And eventually the guy that they did get to, to direct it was was much more just, um, yeah, he was a good director, but it was more like, I'm going to point the cameras at you guys and pick up this magic yeah. that you were creating. I'm not going to try and impose anything on it, which was great. And and so Paul and I were involved in that 
from the start doing bits and pieces uh, they would all always kind of ask my advice on things um and just to backtrack i mean a lot of what they were doing when when we were doing the, doing it live and also probably a little bit on the show was they really wanted to make things uncomfortable for me <laughs> they laughed at me as middle class boy from university who um <laughs> Who was one of Harry Enfield's posh writers? So it was like, let's see how how much we can embarrass Charlie. And they did all over the years. They'd give me, you know, if someone had to have their clothes off, or I was going to say that Charlie be molested by times. someone, it would be me. <laughs> I could think of I could think of in the smell and shooting stars and bang bang, where you've been been in a blonde wig and very skimpy undergarments and usually cowboy boots. Yeah, there's a lot of cowboy boots involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a Ken Tussle, the wrestler. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was in wrestling shorts. Yeah, he was a he was, but he he was a wrestler and an antiques expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then they got Paul to um script edit one series, and Paul basically said he didn't really know what script editor did, mm. and he had very little input because, as I say, Paul is quite instinctual. So he was very good on. He would basically say, "Oh, Bob, just fall over again." <laughs> so that was his input. Um, and I can't remember. Did I then take over Jack, the job? Jack Doherty. Did yeah, one Jack Doherty was involved, oh, Jack wasn't Doherty he as well. Did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So and really, it was just help on the structural front. Right? Yeah. One thing, Charlie, obviously you were working with Harry at the time, and it's about the same time as television, Harry Enfield's television programme, yeah. I guess. So, And obviously you've got the his performers, and a lot of them went in to be in the fast show, and you've got mm. Vic and Bob's performance. But there was very little crossover with Harry and Vic and Bob. I can only think of one time when I've seen Vic and Harry on the screen at the same time, which was a, a charity show, and they did the Four Yorkshiremen sketch, I think, with um, right. Eddie Izzard and Alan Rickman. So, was did oh, Harry ever come and watch the shows with you, or was it? Yeah, Harry totally was a big fan, thing? big fan. But you know, I mean, he knew as everyone else knew that it was very, very different to what he was doing. Yeah. Um, you know, the the Vic and Bob world is quite a closed world, mm. and mm. it was always very different, difficult for anybody else to come into that and do stuff. I mean, even the stuff that Paul and I did was 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 pretty minimal. You know, they found people like like Fred, who did Les, um, and and later on Charlie Chuck, who did Uncle Peter, and you know they would find people that they that they thought were funny and and clicked with them, and, and would use them, um, and you know there was you know obviously they're two completely different and quite big mm, shows that, yeah. that mm. you're not going to start interpollinating them, uh, you know. <laughs> I was probably by the end the biggest link between the two, mm. the two, the two shows. Before we move on from Big Night Out, I just have to mention your finest moment, I believe, which is hats off to Harry Nielsen. Hats off to Harry Nielsen mainly because it's such a great title for an act. Yes. Um, <laughs> and again, you can see it's one of those things that Vic just made up. And and that becomes the act, you know, describing what, what it was. It's pretty much how he described it to me. And in, you know, in in the script was, you know, when he hears Harry Nilsson, his um, <laughs> his hat flies off. <laughs> it's just a great punchline. With the and shotgun. Anything else? Yeah, shoot, he shoots it. And that, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure it was actually a character that I did, but it it was just a great name. And and you know, the, the, those were huge fun to do. And as yeah. you said in the intro, I would occasionally on Big Night Out if Bob had to do. 
well, often at the end of the show where they'd get yeah. people back on and he might want Graham Lister to come on and do something at the same time as a man with a stick because man with a stick, you couldn't see who it was. Uh, it was cheap for me to do it because I was on hand anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone for a minute believed it was Bob. What was it? <laughs> no, no, I have different body shape to him. And <laughs> language, but, um, it's one of the proudest things in my CV that I was occasionally <laughs> man with a stick. <laughs> uh, of course, then they moved on to to the BBC with The Smell. Yes. Where you stayed on uh, as a cast member, but also um, associate producer. On yes. What did that entail? You know, I was I was there. The day, I suppose I was doing script editing to start with. But then I sort of became, as I say, they would ask me for advice on things and they would tell me what they wanted. And I sort of became the conduit between them and the production side of things of of realizing okay this is what they want is this clear talk it through um you know and i could be up in the in the in the booth with the director and the recordings um as a sounding board should we do that again should we go again um you know is this right are we capturing what they want and also working with them on the scripts and you know i it became a pretty much a full time job for me and I think on the first series that they'd asked, I, I was officially been um, script editor, but I, I said to um, to Channel X, I said, look, I'm, I'm actually doing quite a lot more than this. Could I have some kind of a credit to acknowledge that? It wasn't any more money, I don't know. Um, so because the, the director, very good director, John Birkin, was also the producer, but it was, it was a lot of work. So it was kind of lightening his load and having a creative input on it um but the thing was uh, you know th- then the the mm. scripts that they would send were were amazing and incredibly detailed and vic had these amazing drawings and illustrations any prop mm. he would draw in his inimitable style and it amused him to put kind of too much detail you know there would be you know it would be a quiff and it would say 17 inches <laughs> um and a pair of shoes and there would be sort of geometrical <laughs> measurements and things like that and and a lot of the time the, the people making these things and they got an amazing team together of, of costume makeup and um uh you know making props doing the special mm. effects and all of that and mm. It would be my job really to go around all these departments and help them interpret what Jim had drawn. Because often they'd come to me and say, Look, I've been working on this quiff. Can I not make it 17 inches long? I say, He just put that in as a as a joke. He, he doesn't know how he probably doesn't even know how long 17 inches is. <laughs> but you know, just make it unnaturally long. Yeah. Um, and also a lot of the time it's it's trying to get people to make things not too slick particularly on 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 the makeup front mm. is that the, mm. you know the great thing about them had always been the sort of homemade feel when they made you know made their own like brian ferry masks and things or the mm. thing to squeeze the lard through for for, for <laughs> graham lister um and and again you know because of that we have huge budgets the makeup people it was saying no 
if they want a cardboard wig, make a cardboard wig. And they said, but it's going to look shit. I said, yeah, that's part of the joke. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I mean, that was the Jane Walker was the the, cost, the 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 makeup woman. And she was absolutely amazing. She went on to do all the far show stuff and now does all the big shows like Game of Thrones and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she, she actually said it was it was really good for her to be loosened up because she'd gone through that very rigid BBC training of how you do costume and makeup and just to throw all those rules out the window and have fun with it. She found very, very liberating. And, you know, it, it, so I, so it was my job, you know, because Jim and Bob were very involved in rehearsing the shows and getting it all right. And I would then sort of interpret ideas they had. Well, not interpret, but be, then have to go around everybody and make sure that those ideas everybody is on top of. Um, and, you know, putting in my six penny worth um, where needed. I mean, you know, some directors would have had a fit and tried to kill me and throw me off. <laughs> but John was John Birkin was lovely to work with, and he went on to direct first series of of the of the Fast Show because mm. Smell Off started before the Fast Show, and he was you know he was a very very thorough and meticulous director, and you know it was down to him that Smell Off looked so amazing, you know those those yeah. big dance routines and and stuff like that and the attention to detail in all the stuff that they they filmed on location you know like the, the little intro films that they made mm, yeah. Yeah, incredible. and you know on most shows it would be oh we don't have time to do that we, you know we'll concentrate <laughs> on the big sketches but but john loved doing all those little bits and pieces and making them look as special as he could so it, it, you know it was it was a great team that they got together and it, you know it was, it was hugely exciting to be to be a part of that and there's a lot of really small characters who have very little screen time which you play and the most elaborate costumes for a matter of seconds on the screen is that because you were there and so well but charlie well, i was there and i always liked dressing <laughs> up uh, and you know i i wouldn't mind spending the time doing that for, for yeah. like three seconds as a german <laughs> with a beer tankard doing something that's, that's right <laughs> uh, uh and you know i and i love doing those bits and pieces um yeah, so it's great, great fun to do, and, and yeah. but at the same time, you know, Paul and I, having done the Harry Enfield's television program, we 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 put together the Fast Show, and I remember the the first episode of the Fast Show went out when we were on location. It must have been series two of Smell of Reason Mortimer. We were on location doing Slade on holiday, somewhere, in a big hotel somewhere, and it was on late night Tuesday night, the first episode of the Fast Show. And we all watched it together. Paul didn't. Paul couldn't bear the, <laughs> the embarrassment and the tension oh, with Vic and Bob. You know, he's always but you know, I, I that you know, everybody enjoyed it. Luckily, <laughs> of course, the first fast show character I think I probably ever saw was Swiss Tony mm. on the Smell of Reason Mortimer. Yes, so he came on the fast show to series two. Was it the fast show? Swiss Tony's first appearance was at least series two. Yes. Yeah. Was it even series three? Might have been. No. Yeah, no. I mean, that was just uh, one of the characters that they 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 wanted, and uh, it was the Brahmin buying a nice car. Yeah. And and again, Jim had done this amazing drawing of Swiss Tony. People often say to me, "Why is he called Swiss Tony?" And I said, "I have absolutely no idea. That's just what Vic and Bob came up with <laughs> on their show when I did it." And there was this drawing, and it, it, was, it was pretty much like Swiss turned out, except the, the, the quiff was much bigger and more. <laughs> and he had uh, plastic bags tied over his shoes 
which we didn't do in the end. Um, and <laughs> you know, get back to his that. ex. <laughs> yes, exactly. There was a bit more strangeness in the in their version of him. Um, and if you look at the sketch, I, as often happened to doing things with them, because I was such a fan, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> um, and they had to sort of cut around it so there aren't as many three shots in it as there should be mm. um, to 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 get for the comedy to work as well as it would have done. It's comedy, it's good to see the the comedy and the reaction at the same time. Yeah. Sort of thing. Um, but, you know, during the day, because there was a lot of hanging around, um, Bob and I were pissing around with this character uh, and Bob came up with all the stuff about making love to a beautiful woman. Um, it wasn't in the original. Yeah, and no, I wondered where that catchphrase came from. Yeah, and, and we did all that, but 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 Paul Paul didn't want to use the character mainly because he had this Dutch character who eventually became the the sort of two Dutch policemen that he did on Harry's show, um, and it, and that had been based on someone we'd met. We used to go over to to Amsterdam quite a lot. We had friends over there, and he had done you know just a messing about like he always did to create characters. This sort of the sort of cool Dutchman from from Amsterdam who smokes a lot of drugs and he's always talking about. The ladies getting making love to the ladies and yeah, <laughs> pulling pulling on my pulling on my waders to go fishing is a, you know, it's like you know, with a beautiful woman, um, and he said to me, "You well, you just ripped off my Dutch character." I said, "But it's not exactly the same." There's more to it. He said, "I don't, I don't. It's very funny." So I really had to fight, and and you know, it was probably down to Bob's insistence, saying, "No, no, Paul, this character is really funny." You should do it. The, the, eventually, Paul relented, and we did. We did Swiss Tony on the first show, and and Bob, Bob wrote all the filthy stuff for him. Yeah, I put in all the other stuff about him having a mental breakdown and all the stuff that no one remembers <laughs> to make him more of a character. And um, Bob would just, you know, send in a few handwritten pencil scribblings of of funny lines for him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Bob has to have an outlet for that filthy stuff. I think he does it on the podcast now, just keeps us yes. somewhere he can let, yes. let loose. So that yeah, he's very much a sort of portrait of Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, on the fishing program, he's lovable Uncle Bob. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but he has other outlets for his dark side. Yeah. Um, but it's lovable Uncle Bob who is visibly yeah. turning into this aged uh, that's the national treasure. Yeah. <laughs> but he's got such an amazing eye for for stuff. You can see why him and Jim clicked as they did. You know? Yeah, and you know, the, um, and people will try and analyze comedy and and say why is this funny and why did you do that? And you know, most comedians will say, well, it just seemed to be a funny idea. Mm. Don't overthink it. And, Don't overthink and, it, and yeah. Bob certainly doesn't overthink. <laughs> he's like Paul he's very instinctual instinctive and yeah you know because you know he would like me you know he went he went along as a he'd heard about Vic, mm. Vic Reeves doing this show he was a solicitor at the time he went along and and he just fell in love with it and and he saw something there that a lot of people hadn't and you know gave up his life as a solicitor and, and uh, hasn't looked back and and yes, you know they are a very good partnership. A bit like Paul and I are very different. He and he and Jim are very different. Jim will come mm. in with a sort of, you know, 
ideas from the world of art and philosophy and uh, avant-garde theatre or whatever. And Bob is just there as a as a bloke from the northeast who finds things funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after the smell, um, there was another appearance of one of the smell characters, which was um, Chris Bell in a pilot that you and Paul wrote called The Honeymoon's Over with Alex Lowe. Chris Bell was in that. Yeah, with Alex Lowe, who went on to do, um, what's he called, the old it's man? Clinton Baptiste. Barry, Barry from Watford. Barry from Watford. Barry from Watford, yeah. yes. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, on the back of doing Saturday Night Live and, you know, the huge success of Stavros and then the massive success, the overnight success of Loads of Money, Paul and I became... You know, we suddenly became in-demand comedy writers, and people wanted us to do, to do pilots for them. Oh yeah, um, there was a guy called Seamus Heaney, not Seamus Heaney. Seamus Heaney. Seamus <laughs> yeah. Heaney was running comedy at Channel Four at the time. Seamus Cassidy, who was the in charge of comedy at at, at, um, at Channel Four when they were doing Big Night Out, and. He seemed to consider his job was to make sure that no comedy appeared on Channel 4. Um, he would much more preferred saying no to things. But he did get various pilots made. Uh, I think... At the Weekenders. That weekenders, was ours. Yeah. Ours was the Honeymoon. They did the Weekenders. And, and we did this pilot called The Honeymoon's Over, um, which was sort of loosely based on our lives that Paul and I had had in, in, in Hackney in the 80s. It wasn't the greatest script in the world. It was okay. It was just about two young people sharing a flat and the various, uh, you know, various people they knew around about the place. Paul's heart was never particularly in doing the because we did we did a couple of uh, um, sitcom pilots, but he, mm. Paul really loves doing character sketch comedy and 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 that's kind of it he doesn't want, he doesn't really want to do other things um but we did it and we had fun making it and god i completely forgotten that that, that jim was in it um and mark williams played yeah. um a guy in the post office who worked alongside alex lowe's character and was very much into the territorial army he, he was very similar to the character that mark heap played in space but i don't think... uh, nick frost plays oh nick frost yes that's right. Um, but I don't think, yeah, I don't think yeah, that Simon yeah. and Edgar and, and those guys had ever watched the pilot because I don't think anyone did. Um, <laughs> but, great, you know, great minds stink alike. And, yeah, you know, it was one of those things that probably the incidental stuff in it was funnier than the actual central. Mm. Paul's great in it, I think. He's like a squatter, I think. Isn't he? Yeah. He oh, God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was one of those things where all the stuff around the central story was quite funny. And the central story was a bit kind of bland, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Alex Lowe was good, but it, it it didn't go anywhere. But Seamus liked us enough to to get us to to do another. We did another pilot later on, uh, and and Seamus, because I know a few people told us that he was much more keen on me and Paul than Vic and Bob. I think Vic and Bob weren't weren't as up for kissing ass as we were, perhaps. <laughs> You know, they were very much their own thing in their own world. Mm. Not going to listen to everyone, anyone else, which is why what they do is so good. Um, but anyway, yeah, there was, a, you know, it's those times where you're flailing around, you're trying things out, seeing where you're going to go, what you're going to do. And, it, you know, when it was the fast show that eventually came together. And that's what we, we concentrated on. So it's about this time in the mid-90s and shooting stars 
first appeared. Yes. Which again, you were involved um, as a as a producer on that one. Yeah. It was a so, uh, it was another three, sort of probably credited as something like associate producer again. Yeah. I I was just there as advice that they they liked to try things out on me. They wouldn't. They would very rarely listen to any of my advice. But they, they, no, but they obviously trusted your opinion. They trusted my opinion, and and I was one of the people who who if I thought something was shit, I would tell them. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, and and they appreciate that and didn't didn't get pissed off with me because we had a working relationship when we mm. knew how we all worked. But you know, in the end, they would stick to what they wanted to do, um, and and so yeah, I did. Uh, I was advising on that i'd be there for for rehearsals and and you know on on the evening of the recording again i'd be up in the in the in the box with the director making that all making sure everybody was happy everything was everything was working but you know once it was up and running it, it didn't need anyone like me involved anymore so as it went on i had less input but i always liked it if they rang up and said could i come in and do this character that they wanted um yeah i mean and obviously, you know, that's where i got to know um matt lucas and dave dave williams yeah again matt lucas was one of their finds you know bob mm. had seen him doing bernard chumley yeah yeah live fell in love with him and 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 you know as i say if it was if it was something that jim and bob saw in someone that would work with them then it would and and so you know matt fitted in really well in the way that other people just just didn't always fit in. Uh, Again, you uh, ended up on screen a couple of times yourself. I think Han Solo, I can remember. Alan Ball, a footballer, maybe. Uh, and um, most notably, I think, is the, the male stripper on Ladies' Night. Yes. Episode. <laughs> uh, Very. Again, in a blonde wig and some skimpy shorts. Yes. Limp, limp and, and, and a chain hanging from my nipples yes. thing. <laughs> Perry got quite excited by. Uh, <laughs> yes. But yeah, you know that, that those, those that was great fun, and you know they had extraordinary success with it, and in many ways created a new type of of TV show, mm. sort of yeah, definitely structured panel show thing where the guests are really part of the entertainment rather more than the actual input. Yeah. There's a lot of I trust involved, was... isn't there? There's a lot, of, there's a lot of trust involved. You obviously you trusted their, you know, what, what they were asking of you, you know, you didn't, you didn't really question what they were. Yeah, Well, you know, if, if things were going well, then, you know, you could see that they were going well, you know, and, and, you know, we did a couple of other things together, which I had involvement with. It didn't go as well. I mean, the, the, the ill-fated, um, Ulrika, yeah. it's Ulrika, Joe, mm. just, um, you know, we could tell on the night of recording that pilot that it wasn't going to work. And, and Ulrika was a brilliant sidekick to have fun mm. with, but she, she was not, she was not in the right place and was not enough of a, of a good sort of character performance to, yeah. to kind of not hold the show together, which, which, you know, when people do it well, you know, like Vic does, it make it look easy. You just think, well, that's just mm. something it's about. But but it's it's extremely difficult to do, and it's a huge pressure. Uh, and Eureka didn't enjoy it. And no. you know, the best things on it, Eureka, are the little bits that, that Vic and Bob did. You know, like the Jimmy Hill, yes, yeah. <laughs> dancers. Um, yes. 
and yeah it was just too much for Ulrika to try and carry so mm. yeah, yeah but that's the thing it's either it's either natural or it's not isn't it do you know what I mean you can tell when it's not a natural yes. a natural performance yeah but you know the thing with with, with Vic and Bob is that they always wanted to try and create a big mainstream BBC one primetime hit mm. and actually they were they were pretty much almost there with shooting stars it yeah. was huge in terms yeah, of yeah. numbers and, and popularity but it was still BBC two more than BBC one but they really wanted to create you know that because they, they, they did that I mean you know it's 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 unbelievable today to think that when TV is so regimented and so driven by ratings and business decisions that a show that their what was it called their big families at war families at war mm. got made <laughs> yeah. it was extraordinary I mean because it was it was it was mainstream light entertainment fully butting up against the world of Vic and Bob but you can see Bob particularly, and Bob's always been very ambitious, and he wants he wants that sort of mainstream success. It's interesting when you look at shooting stars that Bob is actually trying quite hard to be an actual host of a of a quiz show, mm. and Bob, Bob and Jim and Jim is trying as hard as he can to completely undermine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Bob was always the one who was there thinking, "I've got to hold this together because Vic could go off at a tangent at any moment." <laughs> Um, which which makes it quite funny, um, but yeah, you know when they did Families at War, Bob was fully convinced that they were making kind of like the new generation game. Which There's a number of episodes have turned up on YouTube now, and it is watching them back. It is, I've, I've, I was in my mind they were very mainstream, but when you watch them back now, they are completely out there at times. And if this is like seven o'clock on Saturday night. Mm. Yeah. Yes, so you know. I, um, I think everybody concerned realised that that wasn't going to happen. What creative people always want is to create, to create a franchise that can yeah. go out into the world and make money for them without them having to be involved anymore. So to 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 create a show like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or Big Brother or one of those things, the creators of those shows make millions, and once it's up and running, they don't have to do any more yeah. work at all. And, you know, the, the, that's what Bob has always wanted to create, something like that. But, you know, in this life, it's always the things that you don't expect to be a hit that suddenly take off and the surefire winners often die. You know, it's interesting, you know, Carolina Hearn, who yeah. we obviously worked with on a fast show, she had huge success with, with the Mrs. Merton show. Mm. And on the back of that, she got a deal to do two, to develop two other shows for the BBC. One was a, a, a sort of reasonably straight Mrs. Merton sitcom, Mrs. Merton and Malcolm. Malcolm. Um, and that was, oh, well, that's the big mainstream hit. That's the one that everyone's going to love and watch. And then she wanted to do this thing called The Royal Family, which was going to be shot like a documentary. And it was just people sitting in their living room watching TV. And that was the weird outlier that, well, you know, might, it might work late at night, someone might watch it. And, you know, the BBC did try and steer it to being to being a more mainstream sitcom. They said, well, do it in front of an audience. You're really funny. Mm. You're great with an audience. Make it a proper sitcom. Mm. She stuck to her guns. Mm. And obviously, Mrs Merton and Malcolm pretty much sank without a trace. Mm. That wasn't what people wanted from Mrs Merton. And the royal family became this huge 
huge success and and you know this sort of Mm. central to the history of british comedy but nobody predicted that in advance and it's like bob and paul doing gone fishing nobody (laughs) thought that would be a hit this is two old men who whose heyday is long past going fishing in some (laughs) quite unspectacular parts of great britain you know it's not like they're going to the grand canyon or not but it's nice seeing Paul being himself. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're seeing kind of behind you the curtain. You think that's of... what he's like? <laughs> but that's what we like to think that he's like. But no, you know, and it, was, it, was made, it wasn't made for entertainment. It was made through factual and it was just going to be yeah. a nice a nice little show on, mm. on BBC Two that a few people might watch. Nobody predicted it would become a huge success and that young people would love it as much as as old people and that people would react to everything about it that wasn't what modern TV was supposed to be. It was slow. Not a lot happened. It wasn't flashy editing. It wasn't. And coming up, <laughs> all over. There's, no, there's no narration. There's no voiceover on yeah. it. It's just them doing that. And people have absolutely fallen in love with it. And, and you know, Bob has found that mainstream hit that had always Alluded it well. I mean, shooting stars was 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 a pretty yeah. mainstream hit. So yeah. you know, it's better not to try and cold heartedly plan these things. <laughs> I'm going to make a big yeah. show, and um, they often come from from the unexpected quarters. Yeah, going back to shooting stars, you you toured with them with the fast show, a double header. Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly a tour; it was a residence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Apollo. We did, yeah, we, we did 32 nights at the Hammersmith Odeon which was a record at the time and 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 was pretty extraordinary uh, and huge fun. Yeah, I mean, um, Vic and Bob came to me and Paul and they said, you know, they, they, they had done, had they done Shooting Stars a little tour of it? I don't know, but so. they, back in the day, they'd obviously done big night out tours and things, which had been massive on the, on mm. the sort of the, the student circuit. And 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 full like going to a rock and roll gig because everybody was singing and shouting the catchphrases and and were pissed and standing up and um, and and you know they said oh you know we really want to do shooting stars live but we know it won't sustain a whole evening mm. <laughs> because they're quite shoddy in their way that they put things <laughs> and you know it, it does it works it works well for half an hour or so and they said would you like to do we we do a show and we split the halves. We do it because um, they'd been talking to the promoter Phil McIntyre about doing it at the Hammersmith Odeon, Labatt's Apollo, I think, as it was at the time. I don't know what it's called now, um, but my generation we call it the Hammersmith Odeon. <laughs> uh, and so they said, you know, we could do half show each, and we thought that was a great idea. Um, there was a a good guaranteed amount of money up front, and then they said, you know, can we go on first because ours is going to be pretty shoddy. Um, and we know that you'll do a proper show <laughs> work much harder than we did. That was the other thing that over the years, from there beautifully, you know, you'd get 70 pages of script for 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 um Smell of Reason Mortimer with all these illustrations and drawings and diagrams and stuff. Uh, as they went on, the scripts got shorter. Till by the time they were doing bang bang, it's it's Reeves and Mortimer, it would be like <laughs> Jim and Bob will now hit each other with <laughs> five minutes yeah uh you know there would they you know you would still get these flashes of brilliant you know uh, some of their best stuff was on bang bang it's it's reasonable but yeah it it wasn't as 
as as densely made and thought through as as some of the earlier stuff. But um, but yeah, so so for the for the Hammersmith gig, yeah, they they basically went on and sat behind desks for an hour, taking the piss out of whatever um, celebrities they could get to turn up that night. They had a mm. few regulars who came quite often, um, and you know that you would have six, seven, eight nine up to ten people on stage with radio mics at the same mm. time all shouting at once it was chaos it was great fun but quite <laughs> quite chaotic and then our show would come on for the second half and we'd put together a huge show with scenery and we'd built a sort of fake proscenium arch and we had a huge team of makeup and costume to do the quick changes for us and we'd spent months writing it and rehearsing it and i remember uh, years afterwards you'd meet someone and say Oh yeah, I was a big shooting stars fan. We came to see them at, at um Hammersmith Odeon, but um we didn't stay for the second half. <laughs> we were we were Vic and Bob fans. Say, so, oh we'll regret it now. I think it probably would have been good. But no, it, it was fantastic. Um Did and Vic and Bob stay for the second half. <laughs> they went to the Did pub. Vic and Bob stay for the second half. <laughs> no, no, God no. Um, <laughs> because they they built this sort of nightclub in the car park behind the Odeon. <laughs> um because it was sponsored by Via company and um so yeah so it was perfect for them they could go on stage they would have had you know like a pint of weak lager before they went on and they'd have weak lager in their coffee mugs um and then they'd come off stage and just go back to the to the the nightclub behind the stage with free beer <laughs> with their celebrities and any other celebrities who turn up and just get hammered and so by the time we came up, oh there'd be this big party going on um, <laughs> in the car park. But no, I mean, that was huge fun to do that. You know, every night you'd get the tube down there and, and rock up. And you'd know what was going to happen You'd, you'd, you'd in the dressing room. We would all, there was a little bar backstage that we would all convene in. We would have we would have a drink as well and then get ready and, and do the show. And, it, you know, that that was fantastic. And that, I suppose, was was a sort of coming together of, of things that had started in 1977 when Paul and I went to DEA. We met each other. We met, um, well, I, I, I met Jim. And we'd all worked together on each other's things over the years. So it was, it was really fantastic to be able to do that live show where it was all of us hmm. together, having, just having a laugh. And and yeah. I think one of the great strengths of the night was that the two halves were so different. You got a really, really good night out. Oh, I got it. I couldn't make one. Never mind. <laughs> Call I, was a fan. I was there. <laughs> oh, excellent. I was I there. I think before the internet. Stay for the second half. I was... I was, of course I oh, <laughs> huge fa- Well, you know, I'm a huge fast show fan. So... <laughs> it passed me by. Yeah, it's like a dream. Do you know what I mean? The, two of your favourite things in one night. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know why people don't do more of that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, just last word on shooting stars. So several, several years later, you went back as a guest. Uh, what was it like being yeah, on finally. that side rather than behind the scenes? <laughs> well, it's a thankless task. <laughs> You're simply there to make um, to make Jim and Bob look funny. And, and yeah. in fact, very few comedians did it, and they invited very few comedians on because the later panel shows were developed as as kind of showcases for ways mm. for comedians to go on and do their stand-up but shooting stars they just wanted people to come on and laugh at the jokes and get embarrassed and be made fools of um yeah. occasionally they would have have comedians on if they were just if particularly bob if he was just like a huge fan of someone he would have them on just because he wanted to have them on 
Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's not something that you could go on and be and be funny. So I, I sort of had to do my persona of the slightly stuffy middle class boy that they would like to take the piss out of. So. Yeah. But they had such a vast array of it was like people were clamoring to to get on shooting stars, weren't they? At the yeah, well, you know, it, it, it was good exposure. And the best thing was when Americans or, or people who didn't know the show were advised to go on by whoever <laughs> so out there publicity. You know, like famously Larry Hagman. Um, yes. And they were always the best guests who were just bewildered. Uh, and somebody said, yeah, it'd be really good for your profile to go on there. I yeah. remember the, the very first show they had John Peel on. And um, <laughs> it was always decided in advance who would win, who would lose, who would be made to do the the challenge and the challenge would often be sort of designed around them and um they wanted the the, the end was to for the whoever won or was going to win would, would go in a pram slightly dressed as a baby i think and i don't know things were thrown at them in the pram they had to catch or something <laughs> um and it was given to me because i knew john peel a bit um from my days doing music and also when he was a TV critic, he was TV critic for the Radio Times, and he was one of the people mm. who, who championed the fast show and was down to the likes of him that, that we managed to get a second series. So, because Vic and Bob, whilst on stage they could be very brave and do what they like, off stage they were they were less brave and they get other people to do the dirty work. Which <laughs> was often me, so it was. Oh no, ask John Peel if he'd be okay to do this, you know. The physical thing at the end and of course john peele said no i really don't want to do that <laughs> sounds quite embarrassing it's not my sort of thing i said oh you'd be all right john and he was really didn't want to do it but of course then in the heat of the moment when he'd gone through the whole show and the energy of it he did do it and and, and he and he loved it destroyed your friendship yes but you know, often there would be guests on who you just didn't get into it and didn't like it and didn't hate it. And in retrospect, there were a couple of things that they did which, which were a bit off mm. that, that Vic and Bob did did to the guests. Uh, yeah, we mentioned Bang Bang briefly. Uh, of course, that was next, where I think you were script editor on that one, and so, again some great performances. Yeah. Most notably, with very Pat, very Pat thin scripts. You know, my job on that was just: <laughs> Do you think you could actually write a bit? <laughs> Rather than, well, there's too much. What, what are the best bits that we can do? <laughs> How do you edit their scripts? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was, you know, again, it was it was just being there in advisory capacity as much as anything. But you know, I mean, I did get to do a couple of performing bits. Mm. That that the the um, the monkeys sketch seems to be oh. an enduring favorite. <laughs> it's got to be my favorite of all time, I think. Yeah. Which. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so you know there were some moments in that series that were absolutely sublime, but the I think the I think that the stuff they did in the studio wasn't as strong as what mm, they yeah what they'd right. done before because it wasn't as rigorously as rigorously worked out. They they they'd got not exactly lazy, but that you know they were probably you know, a little bit tired. They'd been doing the stuff for so long, mm. and they were relying on well. We know that's funny. I mean, they they did also rely on quite a lot of quite well done physical stunts and things like when they're hitting each other with the pads and they get the mm. faces stuck on and things like that. Yeah. Um, 
it was an amazing guy who did all the special effects and made those props and blew things up who was called steve (laughs) (laughs) i wish i could remember his name good old steve i actually met him recently he turned out to be a friend of a friend and he just loved it Mm. um and he was great at, at making things as they had designed them. I remember on Cox and Evans. That was the smell. Yeah. That, that was, was the smell. The smell. Yeah. Um, we were filming down in Hastings and they had these Cox and Evans novelty dustbin things. Yeah. Which which Steve had built. And they were beautiful things. And they were down on the seafront. And the sketch caused called for them to malfunction and start smoking and blow up and <laughs> obviously you get, I need to get permissions to do these things and you'll say well it'll be a small control small control <laughs> and steve said no it won't be a small explosion <laughs> and he nearly blew up at the whole of hastings no <laughs> mighty bang but he just loved 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 doing that stuff steve webster Brilliant, brilliant man. Um, yeah, and so you know, uh, he had a big input on 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 Bang Bang of making all that stuff. And making mm. all that. Did you say the stuff on film, like like the club, which obviously oh yeah, God, that was led on, on to Catterick, which we'll get to mm. eventually. You Rupert the barman, I think you were in in that. He was an interesting guy. Yes. Um, well, I did the yeah, I did the narration and. Uh, yeah, I I did. Oh, I did an act on stage. A man pulling levers on a big machine while a load of geese <laughs> wandered around. Um, and yes, I was the barman. But again, that's another one of those bits of filming we did because it was it was largely improvised, and I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> and I tried to kind of work that into the character as yeah. if that's what he was doing. He was just giggling, but that was just me giggling. It's mainly because of Bob's elaborate wind breaking during those. There stitches. was that, and and <laughs> everybody was kind of doing bits and pieces. Morena doing stuff, and yeah. twitching, and yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, some some really, you know, stuff like that in in Bang Bang was was really funny and really really strong. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I I felt it was it was slightly, it not as strong in in, in the studio stuff. Mm. A, bit, a little bit thin. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the year after that, uh, Randall Hopkirk deceased. Arrived. Yeah, again, uh, they they um they'd found out that Working Title had got the had got the rights to the whole of the old ITC catalog, all the stuff that Lou Grade made, and that they were looking at doing a remake of Randall Hopkirk deceased. And of course, you know, Jim's white suit had been directly inspired by the original Randall Hopkirk deceased. Yeah, those people who don't know it. Two detectives, one of whom is a ghost, wears a white suit. And they got in touch and said, you know, if you are doing this, we would love to be Randall and Hotcook. At which point it became a viable package. You know, they were they were big enough names and it became, oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so we managed to get it up and running. Um, they asked me if I would produce it because, again, they wanted me to sort of be... Actually, no, they asked me to write it. Write the pilot, and then on the back of that, everybody seemed to like it. It was like, would I be producer because they they wanted me to sort of because they we we trusted each other. Um, I ended up directing some of it and also acting in it. I, I took on way way too much. Yeah, um, it nearly killed me. 
but it was huge fun to do. And, you know, I was trying to bring back, as were Vic and Bob, the shows that we'd loved in the 60s. When UK TV made all this imaginative, out there fantasy stuff, shows mm. like The Prisoner, The Avengers, Randall and Hopkirk, mm. um, Adam Adamant, The Champions, what was it called? Jason, um, Department S, you know, Doctor Who. There were all oh, yeah. these out there shows which, which disappeared by the 70s and everything became realist kitchen sink drama. Um, and we've never gone back. We've never refound that making that fantasy stuff. You know, the Americans carried on doing it a lot, so mm. making their big sci fi shows and fantasy shows and high concept shows. But, but Britain, it became if it's not realistic, it must be shit or it's mm. for kids. Um, so we really wanted to bring that back, and I just thought this is a great opportunity. We've got Vic and Bob, we can have them at the heart of these mad shows. Um, and 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 just have a lot of fun and you know i could write it to, tailored for them knowing what their strengths and weaknesses were um and and really it, it was vic and bob in random hotcook they weren't i didn't want them or need them to kind of play other play anyone other than themselves mm. um i know bob struggled with it and and uh, particularly in his in his autobiography he's talked about how hard he found it yeah. And it was partly because he, you know, he suddenly thought, oh, I better try and be a proper actor. And perhaps a couple of the directors did try and sort of push him more in that direction, yeah. which, which wasn't what, what we needed. It worked better if it was light and, and everything was on the surface. And, and he wasn't comfortable doing that stuff. I mean, I, I think he comes across as much better than he thinks he was. I think so. Yeah. But, but I think he's still a little bit embarrassed about watching it. Mm. Um and you know that we did, there was a bit of backwards and forwards when we first did it as to who should be the dead one, the ghost, and it, and and you know I kept saying well it has to be Jim because he's yeah. known for wearing the white suit. But actually, I think in some ways it might have been better the other way around because in the series the ghost is kind of like he's kind of like the serious one trying to sort stuff out and. The living one is the guy who's, who's a bit more wacky and adventurous. Um, so we had to have we had to have it that, that Bob is more the living one is more sort of down to earth, and the ghost is is the wild one, which works on many levels because it meant that we could put Vic in a in this slightly mad environment and have fun with Tom Baker and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it meant that Bob had to do more of the and the heavy the heavy lifting, which I don't know. I don't know whether it might have been better if, if Jim could have been just this daft bloke getting into scrapes and Bob is trying to help him. Mm. Yeah. There was that so weird, Bob... weird love, tri love triangle as well thing going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, which I think is there in the original. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, again, it was it was Jim and um, Amelia that got it on with each other. Well, which is right because they were they were they had been married in the show, um, <laughs> and but yeah, I mean Bob 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 found that all a little bit difficult and uncomfortable doing that doing that side of things. But I think Bob, he did acquit himself well, and and I, I you know I'm really proud of of what we made, mm. and that it was quite different to everything else that was happening, and and we managed to get an amazing cast of of actors to come on mm. because 
they all felt the same way. They all wanted the chance to do something a bit more out there and a bit more daft and outrageous and, and less intense. Um, you got Stephen and, Burke off and Derek Jacobi and people like that. And, and again, you have yeah, a lot of the guys you were and... nearly all the far show cast are in it at one one point yeah, or another. I think I gave parts to all of them and half the League of Gentlemen and yeah. Yeah, Laurie and David Tennant and yeah, really, really good people. Simon yeah. Pegg. Because they all wanted to come on and have have fun, and and for the most part they did have fun. I mean, it, it you know it's hard work making a TV show. Yeah, and that's the thing with a, with a about... show like Randall and Hopkirk that's so beloved by people, and it's such an iconic series. You know, there's always that kind of like, oh, I hope they don't <laughs> shit on it. Not shit well, on yeah, it, I mean, you know yeah, what I mean? You know, like... that, you, know, that was a, you know, that was an older generation. We were we were wanting to go for a younger generation. For yeah, exactly. Who, who didn't necessarily know the show, and actually, mm. of the of that roster of of the sort of sixties ITC shows, Ren and Hotcut was was good. It wasn't mm. it wasn't great. It wasn't like the Prisoner or the Avengers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, this is just fabulous. Um, it was a good workmanlike thing, and you know, and it and I don't know whether I made a mistake because the 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 controller BBC uh, two Peter Salmon. He said to me when we when we were putting it together, he said, Charlie, just make sure that it's a proper solid detective show. We've got a strong detective mystery each week. And, and because people are familiar with that and, and, and to go with that. And and I probably wrongly thought, I've got a show with Vic and Bob where the two detectives, one of them's a ghost. We can we can make it a bit more out there than just a detective show we can go off anywhere we want mm. um but actually you know it probably we might have been able to to carry on with it if 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 i'd made it much more of us like the original world which was just solving a crime each week and he would use his skills as a ghost to, to help solve it but I, I wanted to do more with it and send it into more fantastical realms and and that's yeah. bits that i really loved making them which i think people now probably enjoy and 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 when it came down to it as i say you know there there are there are limitations with vic and bob they're always only going to be vic and bob yeah, yeah. um and, and and so i just wanted to make it you know their world but you know I, I, and, I, and i had sort of rules a bit like the original avengers of there's never any scenes in it of anyone just walking down an ordinary high street there's no jeans and trainers mm. um it exists in its own little mm little bubble which is what they did on on the avengers mainly because they couldn't afford crowd scenes and things but um it's a it's a slightly airless world that it that it takes place in and you know i loved creating that i mean there's yeah the scenes in limbo with uh tom baker are, are just a standout standout scenes for me i mean what what was it like working with tom well they were she fabulous was... and they they had great fun with each other and they both made each other laugh I mean, pretty much all of 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 their of Tom Baker's scenes were, were shot on a on a blue screen studio. Mm. So it was just a blue floor and all blue walls all around them. Um, there would be bits of furniture, and you know, it, it came to me again to to say to Tom, "Okay, well, this is going to be this room, and it's got these sort of weird sliding walls, and there's a door here, and." Jim will appear as a sort of ethereal thing and he'll come down and he'll appear there and he said, I don't understand any of that fucking shit. <laughs> Just tell me where to stand and what to stay. I'll, I'll, Didn't I'll have do, that on Doctor Who. I'll do my fucking lines. 
and we're off. And um, and I'd say to him, yeah, you know, okay, so, so you know, your job in this is to describe how the afterlife works and all this stuff to Jim. To Jim, he said, I don't understand this fucking dialogue, Charlie. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I didn't understand any of the stuff from Doctor Who, but I can do it. I can reel it off like squirrel shit. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, and you know, I'll tell it. You'll believe it, but I won't have an under have a any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he's fantastic <laughs> and he was absolutely you know brilliant and you know he 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 bought into it and uh, you know it was great of, of doing a show like that which is, which is large elements of fantasy the actors have got to commit to it and they all did they all loved it you know i mean Derek jacoby was a dream to work with <laughs> being a slightly mad character who built an amazon rainforest underground um and yeah, he gave it f- absolutely full commitment, and 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 that just made it so much easier for everybody else involved. So yeah, great fun to make. And it led on to the revival of those Saturday night sci-fi shows. I mean, you were followed, and it was Primeval, Merlin, Robin Hood, which is not sci-fi but fantasy. Yeah, and of except, course. Then Doctor Who, which is still yeah, going yeah, yeah. Those are all, you know, those are all kids shows in a kids slot. That's the thing. Yeah, and and in fact, you know, a lot of the people who worked on. Random Hotkirk were Doctor Who types because uh, you know um, I needed people who understood storytelling and drama, but also sci-fi. So you know, th- th- a lot of them had worked on the Doctor Who books. Mm. You know, like Mark Gatiss um, and uh, Gareth Roberts. People like Mark Gatiss and Gareth Roberts, um, and obviously we had Murray Gold doing the music, who went on to do Doctor Who. Um, we had David Tennant in the first episode. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of talent on on Randall Lockhart that, that that went on to work on on Doctor Who, and and I was really pleased when when Russell Davis got it got it so right with the relaunch of, of Doctor mm. Who, and and people enjoyed watching fantasy again. He had to do it in the guise of being a, a kids show or at least a, a family show. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, on the back of that, some of that talent has gone on. You know, he's done things like it's called Years and Years, which yeah. which again has a sort of a sci-fi element to it. Mm. Um so but still, you know, anybody in this country who wants to do fantasy stuff, they pretty much have to go to America or to streaming services, yeah. you know, something like Good yeah. Omens. A lot huge amount of British talent in that, but it's mm. you know, it's not a direct it's not a direct BBC uh, commission. Mm, mm, yeah. And the most recent show I think you've done with them, um, with Vic and Bob was Catterick, where you... Uh, yeah, that's played... very recent. <laughs> well, it's 20 years ago, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> In the grand scheme of things. Catterick. <laughs> yeah. We played Pat the Publican, which had who had his own catchphrase, which was hand. <laughs> <laughs> That one really caught on. Oh, that's a classic. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it mainly revolved. You don't get people shouting that to you in the street, though, Charlie. No. <laughs> there, some people did respond to the spatchcock chicken element. Oh yes. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun to do, and 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 Vic and Bob were, had a lot of fun making it, and it was, I think, it was a project that was very close to their hearts. Yeah. And again, they they got in all the people that they loved and thought were funny. Moena, um, Rishi Smith, obviously Matt, 
Um, Tim Healy's great in that. Yeah, Tim Healy. Yeah, Mark yeah. Benton. Mark Benton, yeah, mm. great, great cast. And and there's a lot of great stuff in it. And, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> but you weren't behind the scenes of that, were you just uh, front of house? Um, no, I don't think I... W- well, I saw the scripts, so I probably gave a bit of input on the scripts. I don't think I was officially a script editor on it. Uh, but I wasn't involved in the filming other than the days when, when I was up there. Mm, yeah. I'll tell a lie, you were in something since then, which was, I think you are in one sketch in Monkey Trousers, which is their ITV I was a, vamp- prime it's a vampire sketch of some sort on Monkey Trousers. <laughs> oh, the one, you were in one with um, with Bob, with the, his croc botherer character, which was like a Steve Irwin. Yes, that's right. Character. Maybe I did two sketches. Or maybe, maybe I missed being bothered by vampires. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> but that was another attempt at primetime TV, which I think didn't quite work. Well, their world is their world. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it's difficult often for other people to interpret that. And, you know, I, I think one of the strengths of The Fast Show was the fact that although Paul and I were the main writers and, and, and we produced it, all of the rest of the cast were writing and we had other writers. So we had a large team of writers on it. Um, it meant it wasn't so much work for the two of us. And it meant that the comedy was quite diverse. You know, mm. I, I think in the end, Little Britain suffered from the fact that it was just Matt and David writing it and it was just yeah. them performing it. And that that's hard work to sustain. Mm. And, yeah, it's to a lot. Sustain that. Um, the problem on the far show is, is holding all that talent together everybody's pulling on wanting to go off in other ways so yeah you know Rick and Bob writing a, a, a sketch comedy they got you know they had really good talent involved in the performers and, and I think some of the performers were did have some input in the writing um it's hard to pull off a sketch show that's why it's been abandoned yeah. no. <laughs> well, what, what is it with you and what is it with you and monkeys Charlie they've yeah. just followed you for your through your whole your whole career is just yes well, the something in there. You know, obviously with the, with the with Hickson's, you know, back in the day. With it. Yes, I've done three things where the word monkey is yeah. involved. Yeah, that's Whether a lot. That is it's a lot. Called, it's a lot of monkeys. I don't know. What is it with you and monkeys? What is it with you and monkeys? <laughs> <laughs> How would you sum up? 30 odd years working with Vic and Bob what is it well it was a, it was a it was a privilege and a pleasure and it was great that we you know we both hit a successful period at the same time you know it was fun mm. you know and and to be able to to do things with them which you know I, I did as a fan and you know, I, I, you know, I got to know them as as, as friends over the years. I, I haven't seen as much of them in the last few years. So <clears throat> our lives have, have have gone in different directions and we're geographically in different places. But it's always great fun to 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 meet up with them and and, and do the occasional thing together. Um, so yeah, it's just brilliant to have been to have been part of that. To to mm. to have had a, occasionally get my face into one of the funny things that they did. <laughs> I mean, and do you have a, do you have a process for your writing, Charlie? Obviously, you know, with the the Young Bond books, and obviously your novels recently. Um, are you one of these people that, you know, you kind of set time each day? You write for a certain amount of time each day. Or yeah, I, I, when you I, I write do. For often, Vic and Bob, how were you? 
I do, well, I, you know, I do office hours if I'm writing. It's the only way to do it, you know, if you're self-employed, unless you <clears throat> unless you put in strict a strict structure, you don't do anything. And, you know, it's my job. So, yeah, boringly, I, I, I come up <laughs> to this office in the morning and I, I work till the evening. Um, you see yourself as primarily a novelist now who occasionally gets called upon to do acting jobs here and there? I do uh, more writing than acting. I mean, um, I'm still writing a lot of TV stuff and developing TV stuff. Uh, the last couple of years, novels, my novels have been more prominent. The TV stuff hasn't, mm. for one reason or another, has not been seen yet. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did a bit of acting a few weeks ago, uh, but I, I get called on to do little bits of acting and often I'm busy on something else and, and can't do it. So um, I've had to turn down a couple of, of quite fun things, unfortunately. But uh, Hopefully Jim and Bob will give you a shout to do a cameo in The Glove when it finally <laughs> sees the light. Well, they haven't, yeah, that they haven't asked me to do any of the, the, the read-throughs. Um, <laughs> But I do think they're going to have trouble making a film about someone trying to find Michael Jackson's <laughs> love in this day and age. So, uh, yeah, it might have to be about something completely different. Mm. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> see the light of day. At one, point they were, at one point, they were trying to find Rolf Harris's didgeridoo, but um, <laughs> that fell by the wayside. <laughs> And uh, yeah, originally it was it was one of Gary Glitter's boots. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a a problem, it's a problem with light entertainment. It it can it can turn very dark. <laughs> I can think of a number of Vic and Bob sketches where one of them has portrayed Jimmy Savile, or he has been yes. name checked through the years, which don't get shown yeah. so much nowadays. They anyway. knew. They obviously knew. <laughs> and there's a few guests on Shooting Stars episodes don't get repeated either, but we won't go into yeah. this anyway on that dark note um <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today charlie it thanks, really was charlie. quite a boast well it's been great fun to to uh, dredge up some memories <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for listening to this edition of quite a boast special thanks to matt lucas for permission to use the peanuts music as our theme tune and thanks to ed lewis for this edit Thank you to Jake Chesson for permission to use the photo from his 1995 shoot of Jim and Bob in our various online locations for the podcast. And of course, thank you very much to Jim Moyer and Bob Mortimer, without whom this podcast, well, it just wouldn't exist, would it? Remember to check out Paula's Divine Comedians podcast as well and to join the Reza Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I think you'll agree that really was a lot of fun. Goodbye.